people can really relate to this from the smell of mowing their lawn. Um, And they think, oh yeah, I love that smell of fresh cut grass. Well, that's kind of uh, a little bit sick, but it's the plants cry for help. So the plants (laughs) are screaming um, that you've just chopped them off. Dr. Angel Helms is a relatively recent addition to the Texas A&M University Department of Entomology, attaining her PhD from Penn State University in 2015. Despite being a recent hire, Dr. Helms already has over 15 publications and has investigated questions such as how chemical cues below ground can influence plants and organisms above ground. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's, you know, I'd love to learn a little bit about your history and I want to kind of get through that um, because I think there's a lot of really interesting things that kind of led you to where you are today and then your research. You know, I always, I always call chemical uh, ecologists or entomologists kind of the wizards of our, of our uh, you know, area of research because you all come up with all these interesting chemical concoctions and study these chemistries. And I always find it very interesting. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this discussion. Greatly. Excellent. <laughs> um, so let me, so, so you started off your bachelor's of science in biology with a BA in biochemistry. You finished that in 2009 at Pepperdine University. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you did an honors thesis. What was what was kind of that work in? Uh, so my first start into research as an undergraduate student was in plant physiological ecology. Okay. Uh, so in Southern California, um, there's a Mediterranean climate, and there are these very long stretches of uh, drought where it pretty much only rains. I think in maybe like January or February, and then the rest of the year not a drop of rain. And so the plants there are very adapted to drought to be able to tolerate this. And so I was studying um, some of these adaptations in uh, drought tolerance of chaparral shrub species. And more specifically, I was comparing the some of the hydraulic traits um, or how the plants are able to transport water and um, while tolerating these extreme drought events uh, with plants that were in the Santa Monica Mountains Um, which was close to the campus at Pepperdine and in the um, mountains up around Pasadena. So is that moving water kind of within the plant or how they were able to locate and and Um, it was how they were moving water. Uh, Yeah. So taking up water from the roots and moving it up to the leaves. And um, one, one major issue with plants when they're experiencing this extreme water stress is that the, the xylem, which is what they use to transport the water can become uh, embolized. So you can have the formation of air bubbles that uh, actually block water transport. And so when the, the vessels become embolized, um, then they're no longer functional for the plant. And then the, uh, even if the plant gets water after that, then they cannot recover from uh, the, the water stress. And there are a lot of complicated, um, there's a lot of co- complicated physics involved in uh, explaining how the plants are able to kind of overcome this with, I guess, the various structure, <laughs> structural properties of the xylem. Um, that was a little bit beyond what I was looking at. Uh, we were mostly just uh, doing kind of a comparative study. Very neat. So what was your original kind of career goal? What was your, you know, interest at that time? Yeah. So my original career goal, um, just kind of being a naive biology student uh, who was interested in science, but didn't really know what to do with it. I thought, oh, you know, like, I guess I'll just go to medical school because that's what people do. But then I got a taste of research um, doing this, this work with the plant physiological ecology, and I loved it. And so I thought, 
you know, wow, this is crazy that people can build a career um, just studying interesting ecological phenomena. So um, that was really a big inspiration for me. And I did really like the work in physiological ecology, but um, I was just, what really transitioned my interest into chemical ecology was um, the plant defensive chemistry. So I noticed uh, just how especially fragrant a lot of the plants were. Um, mm. Like they just produce a lot of really interesting um, odor compounds, and you would I would notice um, some of the plants. We, or my my professor at the time would mention, oh, these plants are really poisonous. Like don't um, don't touch your face after you've been handling this, or like wow. avoid this plant, or um, avoid the po poison oak. And I just really wondered, like, wow, this is crazy. Plants are making a lot of interesting things. Like why are they doing this? And um, that was really then what um, guided my interest toward chemical ecology. And I have to say one of the really interesting things, um, projects that I had a chance to get involved with as an undergraduate student was looking at the cyanogenic glycosides of a particular plant species. So okay. these are, um, molecules, the plant stores, essentially it's an ability to produce cyanide um as a toxin obviously yeah. and so the plant has attached this um essentially cyanide forming molecule to a sugar and it can store it in its tissue until the tissue becomes disrupted so for example by an herbivore chewing on that leaf and uh um when that happens then the molecule becomes exposed to an enzyme and then that enzyme breaks apart like cleaves off the sugar and then um there is a rapid decomposition of the remaining unstable molecule that then produces cyanide, which is, as we know, is super toxic. <laughs> and so I was studying um, the cyanide producing ability of um, one of these particular plants. It's Heteromeles arbutifolia. So we were studying that in the leaves of plants that were right around um, the campus in the Santa Monica Mountains, and then comparing yep. that to plants that were on the Channel Islands, so on Catalina Island. So these plants, they were out on the island, had um, along evolutionary time uh, not experienced strong pressure from mammalian herbivores. And so our uh. hypothesis was that they would have a reduced um, cyanide producing ability compared to the mainland plants. And it seemed like they did uh, based on our data. Wow, very interesting. Yeah, I, you know, plant defense compounds are something I've just been learning more about this last year and have really grown a huge appreciation for it. You know, and especially just like, you know, you kind of mentioned, there's, a, I guess, a trade-off to producing some of these compounds. So if you don't have a history of herbivory or if they're specialist herbivores versus generalists, you might expect different types of defense compounds or defense mechanisms against, uh, you know, your herbivores in, in those plants. Exactly, yeah, so yeah. That's really neat. And so kind of um, that was my major motivation was realizing that you can ask these kinds of questions and that uh, there's an entire field uh, dedicated to this type of research. And I was like, wow, I'm totally sold. So that, so that kind of launched you directly into your PhD. Is, is that right? I mean, you didn't do a master's, you went straight into a PhD? Yeah, so I did take one year um, in between my undergraduate uh, degree and before I started my PhD where I did a, a Fulbright. So I wasn't 100% sold that I was ready to go to graduate school because when you're 
um, like 20 years old, uh, five years of your life sounds like a really long time to dedicate <laughs> to studying something. It's pretty laughable now, but um, at the time I was like, oh my goodness, I cannot imagine doing full-time research and this sounds intense. So um, my undergraduate advisor, um, his name was Stephen Davis at Pepperdine, and he encouraged me to, you know, go out and get some extra research experience and um, study. Uh, I didn't get to study abroad when I was an undergraduate, and I um, had really wanted to do that. And I, uh, so I applied for a Fulbright fellowship to go to Germany. And one of the leading chemical ecology institutes in the world is the Max Planck Institute for Chemical Ecology in Jena, Germany. And so I was really lucky to get um, awarded this Fulbright to go to work in a lab in Jena um, under Jonathan Gershenson. And my direct supervisor was Almut Hammerbacher. Um, and so I worked with them and uh, got really hooked on research then. And then I started my PhD. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like a, a pretty nice opportunity there. And that that probably set you up with just a lot of knowledge in that area in terms of techniques and getting to know the literature and the scientists behind a lot of the, that chemical ecology. Uh, so that seemed like a, a pretty, yeah. pretty bright route to go. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty bright, yeah. Yeah, so I did my PhD research under uh, John Tooker and Mark Mesher, and I also collaborated a lot with Consuelo de Marais. And so did you always, so kind of before talking about what you did during your PhD, did you always kind of want to study entomology or was it kind of that, that Fulbright opportunity in Germany that got you set on chemical ecology? What, you know, when was that transition? When did you realize, yeah, there's more beyond just being a doctor perhaps? Yeah. Um, I definitely was not interested in studying entomology originally. Um, it took me a little bit of time to come around to that idea. Uh, I didn't really have much of a background in insects and didn't really know a whole lot about them. And to be honest, it sounded like an incredibly nerdy thing to, <laughs> to study insects. And um, so the reason that I got into that area... And it still is, by the way. Yeah. It's still <laughs> yeah, really yeah. nerdy, but I'm pretty desensitized to it, I guess, now. And um, being one of those nerds, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess it's okay to say that. But... Um, yeah, I, I just thought that is so bizarre and it seems so specialized to to get a PhD in entomology. And just again, being this naive um, 20, like young 20s uh, person, I was like, you know, I'm going to go for the PhD in ecology because that seems kind of more my like my comfort zone. And um, it just so happened that the best some of the best chemical ecologists at Penn State, where I was really interested in working, they all were in the Department of Entomology. And so the <laughs> ecology program was uh, an interdepartmental program. And so I was in that, uh, my degree was in ecology, but I was placed in the entomology department. And that was where I first got my taste of working with insects. And um, I'm very lucky that entomology departments tend to be really accepting and, um, just kind of convinced me basically right away that it was insects were fascinating and it was totally the way to go. And similar to how plants are producing so many interesting chemicals, um, insects are also producing a lot of chemicals and they, their worlds are based around responding to chemicals. And so it's pretty much the perfect scenario for studying chemical ecology. 
So like one of the systems that you study is the tall goldenrod and the uh, goldenrod golf fly. Yeah. Right. Which yep. in episode three, um, I talked to Dr. Brent Sinclair and he talks about cold tolerance of the species, which can tolerate being frozen in liquid helium. <laughs> if you'd like, okay. if you just, if you treat them right, as, as he says. And uh, so they have incredible cold tolerance, but also very interesting interactions with uh, the tall goldenrod. You want to talk about that kind of briefly and what you studied there? Oh, sure. Yeah. So for my dissertation research at Penn State, uh, I worked on studying the chemical ecology of this interaction with the goldenrod gall fly and the tall goldenrod solidago altissima. And what we found is that tall goldenrod plants are able to detect or perceive the pheromone, which we, we it's a putative sex pheromone, so it appears to be attractive to female flies. Um, and these plants can eavesdrop on the male flies that are producing this pheromone to try to attract mates. And when they detect this, this pheromone, they upregulate or they prime their defenses so that when herbivores subsequently try to feed on those plants or when the gall flies uh, try to lay their eggs in there and then their larvae try to feed on the plants, uh, the plants are better defended. So the plants um, can chemically eavesdrop on, on this uh, mating ritual of the flies and get a leg up in this coevolutionary arms race uh, between the plants and the herbivores. So I find this stuff kind of mind blowing and this is what actually inspired me to go. Yeah, <laughs> this is incredible. And this is what got me to actually even go into entomology. So I had a doctor, I had a course with Dr. Jeremy McNeil. I don't know if you'd know mm -hmm. that name at all. He's and, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I, I took love a, those bug t-shirts. Yeah, every always time. Always the, the insect t-shirts. Yeah, every every lecture he wore a different uh, bug T-shirt, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, I took uh, ecology under him and chemical ecology, uh, two different courses, and which are the two courses that you are now subsequently teaching at Texas A and M. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. So all the examples that he gave, and you know how he started talking about it, especially in the context of like agriculture, like how you can use, you know, take advantage of some of these systems. Uh, just kind of blew my mind and got me really interested in learning more about insects, uh, insect ecology, and more on kind of the applied applied side was kind of my my interest. Do you can you give any other kind of classic examples of chemical ecology between plants and insects? Mm, yeah, I think some of some of the really classic work. Uh, has been about how when plants are damaged by an, an herbivore, so when, when a caterpillar comes along and starts feeding on the leaf and they're disrupting that tissue, the plants produce volatile compounds. So they release this uh, pretty complex blend in a lot of cases of different terpenoid compounds, um, green leaf volatiles. So these are like C C6, so six carbon alcohols, aldehydes, esters, um, some aromatic compounds. And so they release these, these odors and a lot of uh, people were really familiar with this from the smell of like fresh cut grass, for example. People can really relate to this from the smell of mowing their lawn. Yeah. Um, and they think, oh yeah, I love that smell of fresh cut grass. Well, that's kind of uh, a little bit sick, but it's the plants cry for help. So the plants are screaming um, that you've just chopped them off. And uh, so the same thing happens when caterpillars are feeding just on a smaller scale. And the plants are, are I mentioned that this is a warning cry. And what the plants are able to do is recruit beneficial 
natural enemies. So organisms uh, at a higher trophic level, like predators, parasitoids that feed on the herbivores, uh, they're recruited in by the plants, sort of like bodyguards, to take out those herbivores. And we call this indirect defenses. This has been studied, uh, I guess, in probably about like the 1990s is when it first uh, was pretty definitively shown by uh, Jim Tomlinson and Ted Turlings and then uh, Consuelo de Marias. They all kind of followed up on this work and, and a lot of others. So these are just some of the, um, some of the names that really found um, that plant volatiles were very important in recruiting these herbivore natural enemies. And a really exciting aspect is that natural enemies play such an important role in agricultural systems. Mm -hmm. So um, there's been, been a lot of follow-up work in how can we optimize these uh, chemically mediated interactions for better uh, biological control. So for uh, pest control, how can we lure in those uh, herbivore natural enemies to help keep our plants safe? Right, right. Yeah, I find that stuff very interesting. I also like that <laughs> that way of putting it, you know, we love the smell of suffering plants, you know, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> or when you muddle uh, your herbs for, uh, I don't know, making some kind of uh, interesting thing, you're making your pesto and you're chopping up the basil and you are enjoying those aromas. Yeah, the, <laughs> those are the plant defenses and the plant cries for help. <laughs> and so, so, so some of those examples you gave were all kind of above ground. Uh, and what's interesting about the paper we're about to discuss is you're looking at, you know, can below ground chemical cues uh, recruit or induce plant defenses against above ground herbivores. Uh, but before we jump into that, I want to learn a little bit more kind of about, you know, now some of your current philosophies and or challenges you might be facing, you know, in, in your relatively new faculty at Texas A&M. Mm -hmm. Were there any kind of challenges or what's it been like trying to develop and provide kind of two, two courses at the undergraduate and graduate level? Um, yeah, it's absolutely challenging. I can't emphasize that enough that um, if, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of uh, work to, to prepare everything. And um, I think especially those who end up in uh, academia and, tend to be more passionate about education as well and making sure that the students have a very quality experience. Mm -hmm. And I definitely can relate to that, that uh, you wanna do a great job of communicating the information and making sure that the students do well. And um, so that has been very challenging, but it's also incredibly rewarding. Um, I thought that I liked teaching and now I'm absolutely sure that I love it. So, oh, nice. Yeah. You know, I'd imagine as a part of what would be really rewarding is um, inspiring those students. You know, just mm -hmm. I, I can't tell you how how much joy it brings me just to see Dr. Jeremy McNeil again, and just I have to go to him and say, "Hey, like, thanks again," because you know, just yeah. the very fact that I'm in this whole entire field, I at least in part owe to him. And so, uh, yeah, absolutely, you have um, a lot of influence over those young minds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little scary, but uh, yeah, no, I, think that, I think that is true. And uh, something very rewarding. So I, I did teach a graduate level chemical ecology class last fall. And mm -hmm. I did, uh, as part of, the, part of the class, of course, we went over a lot of uh, getting some hands-on experience with different techniques. And then the students wrote a research proposal around some concept in chemical ecology, because uh, that was something that I did as a graduate student and I found it very helpful. And actually had several students in the class in, uh, change 
a chapter or include add a chapter in their dissertation around a chemical ecology topic. So that wow. was very rewarding um, that the students uh, thought that it was interesting enough <laughs> that they wanted to then <laughs> pursue the work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so now, as a research scientist, graduate student mentor, uh, you know, what would you say were some of the skills or life values that you think have been more most important to kind of your your success and where you are now in life? Yeah. I think uh, those who are considering going into this this path, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to get mentoring experience throughout your degree. Um, and even if you feel like, oh, you know, it's faster if I just do this myself, um, you have to learn how to delegate and you have to learn how to mentor um, students and you need to yeah, just kind of learn how to become a manager. Because I think in a lot of people in, in our degree, we're very focused on learning all of the research skills. We're very focused on, okay, I need to make sure that I am the best at uh, running this PCR reaction, or I'm the best at um, analyzing these samples. And, and that is all important because you're gonna have to teach somebody how to do that later. But it's also really important to learn how to uh, relate to people and, uh, figure out kind of how to mo motivate people who are working with you. And uh, for me, it was really challenging to learn how to kind of delegate and relinquish control. And it's like, I don't have to do everything myself now. And, and that's kind of a strange feeling. So I can't emphasize enough how important it is to get uh, experience with that. And then also, you need to learn writing. Um, so that never, I think for some people, it comes easier than for others. Uh, you need to take advantage of any opportunity to work on work on your writing skills and writing proposals and writing papers. And, um, cause a lot of the job is writing. Yeah. I think that's been a common thread throughout some of the other interviews I've had as well is, is writing, you know, because you don't really think about that. I no. mean, you know, you know, you're thinking, yeah, research, you know, you're collecting data, you're out in the field, you think about that kind of stuff or teaching a course, you know, teaching classes, you, you can think about that a little bit too, but Gosh, there's a lot of writing, especially grant writing. Mm -hmm. I mean, is is just constant. All right, so now let's jump into uh, one of your relatively recent research articles. So this mm -hmm. is Helms et al. published in 2019, uh, entitled "Chemical Cues Linked to Risk Cues from Below Ground Natural Enemies Enhance Plant Defenses and Influence Herbivore Behavior and Performance," uh, published in Functional Ecology. So, like we had said before, you know, there's been a lot of systems that have looked at above ground. Uh, you know, induction of plant defenses by uh, natural enemies or by herbivores. So what, what is kind of unique about this? Well, what were y'all looking at in this study? Yeah. So in uh, this study is some research that I started working on when I was a postdoc at Penn State with Jared Ali. And so Jared Ali comes from, his kind of background was in chemical ecology. So he started working with entomopathogenic nematodes and below ground herbivores when he was at the University of Florida and um, working with Lucas Delinsky and uh, Hans Alborn. And um, so I was really interested when I saw that he was uh, advertising for a postdoc position, I was like, you know what, like below ground, that's where things are going on and we just don't really know enough about that. And so, I was really excited about this opportunity to look at these below ground interactions. Cause uh, as you mentioned, a lot was done above ground and I personally hadn't really thought about what was happening below ground. And another, another kind of interesting aspect about this, this work that got us thinking was, well, with plants, we often tend to compartmentalize them and we think about the roots as a separate, totally separate thing 
from the above ground portion. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a growing field, mostly I would say probably within the last 20 years or, or less, that people have really started to think about how changes below ground are influencing above ground and, and vice versa. So how are defenses changing kind of throughout the plant systemically? So that was kind of the basis for our thinking. And so uh, Jared's background, as I mentioned, was with entomopathogenic nematodes. And uh, so I wanted to do a project with these, with nematodes. And what we realized in working with them is, so uh, just to, I guess, to give a little more background on entomopathogenic nematodes, for those who aren't familiar, um, they are pretty gross and pretty amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> so entomopathogenic nematodes are uh, insect killing nematodes. So they- like tiny worms basically. Tiny, yeah, tiny worms. Um, like if you look at a little dish of uh, the free living stage of nematodes, so we call this the infective juvenile stage, uh, they kind of look like white lint floating in some water. Um, so they're pretty small, but you can see, you can see them with the naked eye. So the infective juvenile stage uh, is, as I mentioned, it's the free living stage. So they move through the soil and there are different strategies for how they find and attack insects. So there are ambusher species uh, that tend to, I guess, yeah, kind of hang tight and then ambush insects as they come along. Uh, and then there are also cruisers that are actively moving through the soil, looking for nematode, uh, looking, sorry, for their herbivore hosts and, uh, what Jared and also some previous researchers like uh, Sergio Rasman found was that plant uh, roots also produce these volatile cues when herbivores are feeding on them, similar to the above ground portions of the plant, like the cut grass. So the okay. roots are doing this too. And entomopathogenic nematodes are attracted to the odors of these herbivore damaged roots. So they're moving through the soil, looking for, uh, smelling their way, I guess, toward their insect hosts. So after they find a host, they crawl inside the body. Uh, they move in through the spiracles or through the mouth or through the anus, however they can get inside. And then they get into the hemolymph of the insect and they regurgitate a bacterial symbiont. And the bacteria, together with the nematodes, they produce this cocktail of toxins and kind of gnarly stuff. And the insect eventually dies from kind of septicemia from the bacterial infection. And then the nematodes and the bacteria, they go to work and they devour that insect from the inside out. And Kind of fascinatingly, people have documented that the insects, uh, these cadavers, I guess they're called, like these uh, nematode-infected cadavers, they're sort of preserved uh, until the nematodes are able to consume them. Uh, they change color, so they're a characteristic color, depending on which nematode and bacteria species does the infection. And then they produce these antimicrobial, antifungal, anti-scavenging uh, compounds to preserve that cadaver for their own use. So huh. it, doesn't, it doesn't decompose from the soil bacteria in the same yeah. way uh, like just a dead insect would. And what we found is that they, ha they smell really pretty terrible. These uh, insect, uh, insect cadavers that are infected with the nematodes, they have- I like that they, you you- looked at that cadaver and you said, I got to smell that and just see what it smells like. And <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, that's kind of a sickness with chemical ecologists is you have to kind of sniff everything. <laughs> I'm sorry. I interrupted. It. Yep. And uh, so we smelled this and we thought, you know what, this doesn't smell, it smells bad, but it doesn't smell rotten. And so uh, then of course, 
I mean, in addition to sniffing something, you then have to characterize, well, what is the smell? And uh, so we, we uh, characterized the volatile cues that were being given off by those cadavers. And we found uh, this kind of characteristic suite of volatile cues uh, produced by the cadavers. And um, we thought, you know what? I, there's no way that the other organisms in the soil, based on what we know that's happening above ground and even in some of these below ground systems, there's no way that these odors aren't doing something, right? Mm, they must have some yeah. ecological role. And we thought, kind of had multiple hypotheses. We thought, you know what? Plants are pretty incredible at their ability to detect environmental cues and to modulate their defenses in adaptive ways. So we had, from my previous research, we, uh, looking at how plants could eavesdrop on insect pheromones and um, knowing that plants can actively recruit these nematodes uh, to their to kind of aid in their in their defense against herbivores, we thought, you know what, maybe plants are able to pick up on the chemical cues that are produced by these nematodes. So if it's really this characteristic, pretty potent uh, odor source, what is the ecological significance of it? And so we had kind of competing hypotheses. We thought there were two, two ways that maybe plants might respond. The first way is that the plants might detect the, these chemical cues as a warning that, you know what, my natural enemies are present, this, this dead herbivore is present, that means that there's a heightened danger of herbivore damage, and so we're going to increase our defenses um, in the case that herbivores might come and start feeding. Uh, and that was kind of a similar idea to we thought, you know what, if you are in your house, you're sitting there, and you see a lot of police on the street, what would be your response? Would you think, you know what, there's a lot of police out there, there's probably danger. I better lock my doors. I better increase my vigilance against a potential threat. Or our competing hypothesis was, you know what, maybe plants can detect the chemical cues from their natural enemies and they can relax their defenses because the bodyguards are here, they'll do their thing, I don't, we don't have to worry. So maybe you, you see the police on the street and you think, oh, they got my back. It's okay. <laughs> I, and the, I don't and the need physiological to explanation that. being that there's like, like a cost to, to upregulating your defenses. So why, why be on high alert when you can go to sleep, you know? So it's like, exactly. yeah, yeah. And so we, we were investigating these kind of dueling hypotheses. And uh, so we set up these experiments to expose plants to these nematode cues. And the first uh, plant system that we started working with was potato and uh we liked uh, this system partially because um, they have a pretty gnarly herbivore, notorious herbivore, the Colorado potato beetle. And we thought, you know what, this is a, a good system to start, to start testing this. And so we exposed potato plants to these chemical cues from the nematodes. So we have this kind of cool setup. Um, I think there's a figure in the paper where we uh, gently pushed some of these chemical cues from the cadavers onto the roots of the potato plants. And then we challenged the potato plants with uh, the Colorado potato beetles. And we found that the potato plants um, had changed uh, their defense responses uh, in the systemic tissue. So in the leaves, uh, the, there were heightened defenses that then reduced the performance of the Colorado potato beetle larvae that were feeding on those plants. And so we were really excited uh, that, you know what, wow, <laughs> these plants are really queuing in on this. Uh, and our, our findings 
were a little confusing because we saw we did find sort of like a broad spectrum defense was increased, including defense responses against more of a micro microbial or pathogenic response. Mm -hmm. And so that led us to think, you know what, maybe it's not so straightforward for plants. Um, maybe they are a little confused and maybe they're detecting these nematode associated cues as sort of conserved cues of nematodes. And maybe the threat of plant parasitic nematodes is so high that they're actually just fully upregulating their defenses against a, another threat that isn't actually present. And this is kind of how things are probably pretty likely to evolve in nature. Uh, if something is uh, triggered for some particular purpose um, and, it, and it's adaptive in some other way, uh, an organism might be likely to continue doing this. And, yeah. and I guess uh, I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing, obviously, that the plants aren't really, have, they don't have a cognitive ability to assess, assess what exactly is that smell I'm smelling. So yeah, y'all looked at two main compounds, uh, jasmonic acid and salicylic acid. Why are those two important when we're talking about uh, plant defenses? Yeah, great question. So uh, the reason that we were characterizing these compounds is, th so these are two plant defensive hormones. So these are signaling molecules that uh, trigger sort of the cascade of different plant defenses. And if we, we didn't know specifically which defenses might be important and might be turned on. And so by measuring the different levels of these signaling hormones, we can get a broad picture of how the, the general defense responses might be changing. So for example, jasmonic acid, uh, regulated defenses, they tend to be associated with things like necrotrophic pathogens or herbivores that are chewing at the leaves, whereas salicylic acid defenses, uh, and, and I guess the defenses that are triggered in this pathway by the salicylate pathway, they tend to be more associated with things like microbial or pathogen threats. Um, so we can use those sort of as like broad indicators of the defensive traits. And y'all collected those from the plant using, you know, what's referred and is commonly used, I guess, in chemical ecology is dynamic headspace sampling. Could you, could you explain what that is and what makes it dynamic? I mean, is there a static headspace sampling? <laughs> there is, yeah. So, so uh, the we use the dynamic headspace sampling to collect the odors from the nematodes, um, and dynamic means that we're just pushing air over the headspace. So we have uh, an air source that's pushing clean, filtered air over the, the area where the nematodes are, and then we're collecting the odors that they produce on uh, an adsorbent filter. And if it's static headspace sampling, um, there are methods for this as well. It's just, you're not moving air, essentially. So uh, one technique for that would be using um, something called a solid micro, solid phase micro uh, extraction, so SPEMI, and you can use these little fibers that also have this adsorbent material on them and you expose them into the headspace and you just let the, um, let the volatile molecules attach to that fiber for some set amount of time and then you pull it out when you're done. Well, that sounds it. so much more feasible. That <laughs> sounds uh, so much easier, like, but. Yeah, there okay. are trade-offs. So to doing it. Um, it can be a little bit more difficult to quantitate the, the analysis okay. that way. Um, different, this is kind of getting a little bit too, too into it, but uh, some of different molecules have different affinities or different uh, volatility okay. for the binding. Whereas uh, with the dynamic method, you're pushing air in and you're pulling you're forcing it out. it through. It's a little yeah, more active. So yeah. Can, 
yeah so it's uh and another thing is it it really depends on the system so for plants they do not like to be if you're if you're collecting plant volatiles uh, dynamic is definitely a, a good strategy because you can keep that airflow moving over the plants and then it doesn't stress them out as much so if you just okay. put you just put a plant in in a, a jar and you seal it <laughs> yeah uh the plant will uh, okay. be pretty stressed i got you and then y'all then quantified the actual um you know compounds coming off the plants uh using gas chromatography mass spectrometry which again is like one of those wizardry tools of, of chemical ecologists. Could you explain like in very simple terms kind of how gas chromatography works? Sure, yeah. Uh, so essentially you put a cocktail of volatile compounds. So they're all inside of a, a sample. You put that into the instrument and because of the different properties of those compounds, they get separated out over a column. So there's this really long, several meters long column that's inside of the instrument. And because of the different properties of the compounds, they bind to the column uh, for varying amounts of time, which causes them to get separated out over time. And um, that's essentially what you're doing. Chromatography is just separating things. And so here we're doing it by them sticking on the inside of a long tube, essentially. and we can alter how quickly they come out of that tube based on uh, the temperature. So we can heat things up and um, cause them to come out faster or slower. And then you'd need also uh, some standards. Is that right? Do you typically then need to, you know, you're looking for these five particular molecules. You'll, you'll order those five molecules from somewhere that has isolated them and run in that machine as mm -hmm. well. So you can compare kind yeah. of where they've separated out essentially within that. Exactly. Column. Yeah. Yeah. You can run uh, synthetic versions of the compounds to confirm that uh, the timing is, is all correct of when they, when they're coming off that you're getting the correct uh, identification of that compound. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh yeah. I always found gas chromatography just, yeah, it's a really neat piece of tech because it's really hard to imagine how can you know what molecules are in something, you know? And so it's just a really neat piece of technology that we, we have as scientists to, to, to discover these things. Yeah. Absolutely. So you also had female Colorado potato beetles exposed to plants that were exposed to chemicals and the entopathogenic nematodes. And they laid less clutches. I mean, the clutches all have a similar number of uh, eggs. Fewer eggs. Yeah. I think yeah. in total it oh. was fewer eggs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was that was kind of surprising to us. So uh, we wanted to see if there was some behavioral response of the, the herbivores to the odors of the nematodes. So we thought, um, you know, maybe it's a little far-fetched that plants are going to detect these cues, but uh, maybe these, these herbivores, because the nematodes are a direct threat to the herbivores, that perhaps they are responding to these, these cues uh, from their predators. So there's a lot of examples in the literature of prey organisms that avoid cues from predators. So we thought, you know, with nematodes, it probably probably also is happening. Um, since there, we did find this reduction in the performance of the larvae on the plants and uh, the, the nematodes can directly kill the Colorado potato beetles. And so we thought, you know, maybe they'll avoid putting their, their children in harm's way and they'll, uh, 
lay fewer eggs on these plants when we expose them to the nematode odors. And we found that that was the case. There was a reduction in the, the number of eggs laid. Um, and so the interesting point with Colorado potato beetle, again, is that the, the adult beetles are above ground and the larvae are also feeding on the leaves, um, but the pre-pupa and the pupa of the Colorado potato beetles are in the soil. And so uh, in that stage, when they're getting ready to pupate, they crawl down into the soil and then they spend um, some time in the soil uh, during their pupation. And so that's when they would be directly threatened by the entomopathogenic nematodes. So it's not when they're up on the foliage of the plants. Right. And, and, and these nematodes can be commercially acquired and applied. And so in theory, so based on this, at least with potato plants, you can get both direct mortality, but also be indirectly suppressing the Colorado potato, potato beetle by inducing the plant defenses. Is that kind mm -hmm. of the idea here? Yeah, exactly. Uh, that, was, that was the idea is to, to try to see if we can um, optimize our knowledge about, about entomopathogenic nematodes for biological control to find if there are some additional benefits that could be gained from using them. And uh, my lab now is uh, following up on this work to examine in some different systems where we think that there's really high potential for using entomopathogenic nematodes in biological control. So we're working with cucurbits right now and uh, cucumber beetle species. So in this case, the larvae are feeding for their entire duration as larvae on the roots of the plants. So they're in the soil for a long time and they're very susceptible to the, the nematodes. And so we're trying to see if in, in cases like this, where we can get direct benefits, like you said, where the nematodes are directly killing the uh, insects, as well as um, inducing the plants to make them more uh, tolerant or, or more resistant, I guess, against the, the herbivores, whether we can get these, these additional benefits. And this is called, I mean, y'all find uh, some potential evidence of this kind of priming of the defenses. So when they were exposed to the entomopathogenic uh, chemical cues, uh, in the absence of herbivores, there, was, there wasn't necessarily upregulation of salicylic acid or jasmonic acid. But then when you uh, compared that to when there was herbivory, and either lack of or presence of those chemical cues, uh, then all of a sudden you see an increase in you know better defenses, a quicker kind of upregulation of those defenses, and that's called priming. Is that right? Is that a yeah? A, yeah. Is that a common exactly. characteristic as well? Or yeah, it's pretty common. Uh, it's been observed uh, in plants to a variety of different cues, so priming cues, and it's this kind of mysterious phenomenon where we still don't really understand the molecular mechanisms of how priming works, but we know the characteristics of what it means for the plants. So um, as, as you mentioned, I think you mentioned before, uh, that there is this sort of understanding that there's kind of a, a cost benefit ratio of inducing, of I guess, plants investing in defensive traits. So we assume that there is some cost to diverting resources to producing defenses. And plants have, a, what we've, what we've discovered is that plants have different layers to their ability to kind of overcome this. So we have this category of defenses called induced defenses, where the plants are not producing them or they're producing these defenses at pretty low levels until an herbivore actually comes along and starts feeding and damaging the plant. And then the plant turns on these defensive pathways, like I mentioned, by triggering this jasminate pathway that then um, downstream of that triggers these other defensive traits. But there are some trade-offs with inducing your defenses. And one of those is that it takes time to produce all of these things. And so there's mm -hmm. there can be this 
um, biosynthetic lag time uh, in, in turning things on. And so plants have found sort of another strategy around this where they can prime defenses. So if they detect a cue that is associated with an herbivore or a pathogen or some threat, but it isn't the actual event of damage, plants are somehow able to prime or get ready for the induction of defense or this event of, of damage. And so, like you said, when the actual event of the herbivore feeding happens, sometime after they've been primed, they respond faster and the response is, tends to be a lot stronger uh, than in the case when they, they weren't exposed to those cues. And we don't really understand how it happens on the molecular hmm. level, oh, but uh, yeah, it, it's uh, pretty neat. That could have some interesting uh, potential implications because, you know, in a horticultural setting, uh, you know, the plants uh, arguably are not very resource limited because they are just being pumped with fertilizer. And so if you can, uh, you know, somehow induce those plant defenses or prime them with some kind of a chemical cue for poinsettias are gonna, always going to get white flies. So if you can prime them somehow, uh, then you can actually at, at least reduce the population growth of white flies when they do get them. So it's a lot easier to manage. So it'd be really interesting to see kind of where that kind of goes. Yeah, as they, definitely. As they learn more about it. And, and I think that there's a kind of a, an area of, of work around this, especially dealing with uh, beneficial microbes. So there's been a fair amount of work with some of these beneficial plant associated microbes that prime a, a sort of a broad spectrum level of resistance in plants. So plants mm -hmm. that are associated with uh, like these beneficial growth promoting bacteria, when they're challenged with an herbivore, they, they have a, a stronger, more resistant response. Yeah, that's pretty neat. So, so what, what, is, what are some of the next steps in terms of some of this below ground, above ground work? Are y'all still doing some research in that area? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, some of the students are investigating more of the this kind of systemic changes in defenses. So when plants are damaged in the root by root herbivores, how is that influencing the above ground community and sort of vice versa? That's kind of an interesting ongoing field. And um, then I have another student that is kind of continuing on this work with the entomopathogenic nematodes. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, investigating in, in squash and cucumber and in some of these different systems where we have these root feeding herbivores um, looking at the responses of the cucurbit plants to this. Uh, yeah, so those are just oh, a few I, other things that are... I, I look forward yeah. to keeping on top of some of that just mm -hmm. out of interest sake. I think it's just really neat and has some has some really practical applications that can really help in an agricultural setting to at we least so. reduce some of the reliance, yeah, reduce reliance on, say, regular pesticide use, let's say. Uh, but anyways, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Helms, for, for taking the time today to, to talk to me about this. And I hope our listeners uh, can appreciate a little bit more about chemical ecology. Thank you very much. <laughs>